Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Hey. And live via Skype, coming to us uh, from Canada, somewhere in Canada. <laughs> Where are you from in Canada again? Ottawa, Canada. Coming to us from Ottawa, Canada is Rick Harper, who we had on uh, episode five. Great to have you back, Rick. Hey, thanks a lot, man. It's always a pleasure. I'm a big fan of the show, so uh, whenever I have the opportunity to be on, it's, it's always great. It's good to have you, man. His film, Room Full of Spoons, is shaping up to be the definitive documentary on The Room, Tommy Wiseau's uh, amazing little so good, so bad, whatever you want to call it, film. And uh, he's running a Kickstarter right now. Can you tell us quick about that? Yeah, thanks, Cody. Yeah, so uh, we've been working on this movie for about four years now. And while it's, uh, I would say, about 90% shot, we, are, uh, we have launched a Kickstarter campaign on February 19th to try to raise some funds for... Uh, post-production, um, you know, different post-production elements like um, color grading and, and sound, uh, you know, mixing and stuff like that. And, uh, and also there's some further research that, that needs to be done uh, in Europe. So we're going to be going to Europe for a couple of weeks to try to raise some funds for that. There's a large fan base over there. So we're doing, I believe, uh, five countries in three weeks. So, um, so yeah, so that's, uh, that's the Kickstarter. It's, um, you, know, you can search through Kickstarter, Room Full of Spoons, or uh, there's a direct link to it if you go to uh, roomfullofspoons.com. So how much are you looking to raise? Uh, we're looking for 20000 which is, uh, you know, is pretty modest considering what we have uh, left to do. But, uh, but yeah, that's what we're asking for. We're doing uh, pretty well so far. In the first uh, just over a week, we're about 40% there. So uh, things are looking very positive so far. That's great to hear, man. So it's been about a year since we recorded that, um, that fifth episode where we talked to you about the project. What have you shot? What are, what's the progress you've made in that last year? Well, after our last conversation, uh, we went back to L.A. to interview uh, the rest of the people that we hadn't yet met with. So we were able to meet with uh, Juliette Danielle, who plays uh, Lisa in the room, uh, Kyle Vogt, who plays uh, Peter the Psychologist. Um, from there, we also went to Arizona, met with uh, Phil Haldeman, who plays Denny. And that was, uh, it was really cool, you know, like we were really trying to get everybody who was in the room involved in this movie. And some were harder to convince than others, you know, because... Uh, it's one thing to, uh, to, to reach out to people and say, you know, I'm doing this documentary, which I'm sure they've heard before, right? But um, as they saw the project grow and as, uh, you know, they saw that everyone else was, was sort of uh, getting on board with it, then people started replying to my emails. Like uh, Phil Haldeman, for example, took me almost two years to convince him, you know, to, uh, to be in the movie. And then when we finally met with him, he was really cool, gave us a great interview. He let us come to his house and, and uh, it just went really, really well. Uh, we also we went as far as to even meet with uh, Milada Milecevic, who composed the score for The Room. And uh, we had a, a great interview with him. He's a really cool guy. And uh, he actually even offered to score Room Full of Spoons for us for free. So that was... Uh, wow. A, yeah, that, so we had the original great, composer. Yeah. The original composer from The Room doing the score for Room Full of Spoons. So he's really involved and, and really engaged and excited for the documentary also. That's amazing. That's great to hear, man. So is there anything else that you, you still need to shoot or is it just mostly you're focusing on post now? Um, yeah, we're going to Europe. Like I said, uh, we are going to Europe, I believe, in April. And uh, we're going to be going to the UK. There's a, a large, large fan base in the UK that I just couldn't overlook for this documentary. You know, we shot all over Canada and all over America. <clears throat> but there's a, a humongous uh, fan base in the UK. So uh, as a matter of fact, there's uh, even a rock band called Top Buzzer who's recording. Uh, they, they made an EP of songs just related to the room that, were, uh, that they licensed to us to, to use for our soundtrack. So we're going to hang out with them. 
Uh, there's also a gentleman named uh, Ryan Finnegan who wrote a book called uh, The Definitive Guide to the Room. And uh, he's uh, based in London, so we're going to go uh, meet up with him. And then uh, we want to just also see like the, uh, you know, the, the UK experience of the room and meet with some fans over there and, and possibly attend a screening or two. We're going to be going to Denmark and, and a few other countries as well. That's going to be for three weeks. We have three weeks of filming uh, left to do, and then we come back, do the final edit, send everything for post-production services, and then, um, and then from there we should have a movie. We're hoping by uh, you know, September, October, or somewhere in the fall, we should, have a, we should have a full movie. Sweet. You going to send me a copy? Of course I am. You know I will. <laughs> You'll be one of the first to see it, man. You know that. I can't wait, man. Yeah, that was a, that was a really fun time when you uh, came by for episode five. Yeah, it, it sure was. And you know, it's, it's kind of funny because that episode that I did turned out to be a little bit controversial. Really? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll just put this out there. There's not, uh, you know, some people have been asking me and stuff like that. Like, how is my relationship with, uh, with Tommy Wiseau and with Wiseau Films? And how are they responding to, to the fact that this documentary is coming out and our Kickstarter campaign and everything? And the answer is, is not very good. So basically... Tommy's people reached out to me a couple weeks ago with some concerns about uh, the documentary. They're sliding that, uh, you know, that we're uh, in violation of certain copyright rules and that we didn't ask for life right permissions. I, th I guess those are the two big things. There's some other things too, but there's, uh, those are the two main things. And of course, you know, being filmmakers, we did our due diligence and, and we know that we're within our rights. Um, you know, any clips that are being used from the room is, is covered under fair use for... Uh, you know, purpose of, of making a documentary, you know, life rights uh, rules are only for, um, you know, making an actual biopic or an actual like a like a, a fictitious movie or something like that, not for a documentary. So, you know, I responded to uh, to Wesel Films in a very positive email. You know, I, I reached out to them and I, I you know, I, I told them what my intentions were with this project and even extended the possibility of, of, of collaborating and, and told them that this is just a positive uh, documentary. You know, this is basically... It's a celebration of the room. It's, uh, it, it's, it's documenting like uh, Tommy Wiseau's path to success and, and how he turned a failure into the love of America. But unfortunately, you know, Wiseau films aren't seen it that way. And uh, they didn't even respond to my email. And, and like I said, it was very positive. And I even asked them what specifically they don't want in the documentary. And this is not something that I have to do, but just in effort to maintain the relationship, I, I, you know, I put that out there. And I got uh, no response, and, and instead there's been like some backlash from their side on, on uh, Facebook and on Twitter and stuff like that. And it's just been an overall kind of negative experience. That sucks to hear, yeah. It seems but, like what you're saying, they, they don't really have like a legal leg to stand on per se, but it just makes it more difficult. Yeah, that's it. it that, that's exactly it. I mean, you know, there's nothing that we did that is that is wrong, and and no, and God knows if there were, we would, uh, you know, we would adjust our campaign or, or adjust our, our documentary. But there's right. nothing here that we're doing that that is wrong. But uh, they don't see it that way, nor really want to hear our side of the story. And instead, I, uh, you know, I go on Facebook, and there's like these different like slanderous posts about me and, and very negative things, and saying how I'm a liar and a thief and, and all these things. And it's, it's just, uh, I mean, I refuse to respond to that type of behavior. You know, I, I try to deal with things professionally, but this is the, the avenue that he chooses to go. And, you know, the, the fans have been having a blast with it because they're just thinking, oh, it's just Tommy being Tommy, right? Like, it's, it's, it's fun for them. But, you know, coming from my end, though, somebody trying to discredit the work that I've put into this. And like I said, I've worked on this for four years now. 
and this is uh, I'm very passionate about this project. It's, it's a very positive documentary. I mean, you can check out the trailer for yourself. There's there's nothing slanderous or, or anything uh, about it, and it's just it's very very disappointing, is what it is. How's the rest of the cast and crew responded to that? Do you know? Have have any of them gotten in touch with you? Yeah, I actually I've spoken to pretty much everyone and everyone is still supporting the documentary they're proud to have, to have uh, been a part of it uh, you know they're still uh, sharing the posts and, and retweeting and so i have the support from everyone who's uh, who, who's been in the room like everyone who's in my documentary is, is still you know supporting it and agrees that i for the most part that i, ha- I haven't done anything wrong here you know so I, I think it's just really coming from uh from wiseo films and it's really tough to see what their intention is because I don't understand if it's just truly a matter of I used um, I think in my trailer there's maybe 12 second a 12 second clip from the room then you know focus on that tell me what exactly your problem is but it just seems like they're, they're they just want to shut the project down altogether and uh, I mean this thing is almost completed it's it's coming out one way or another you think it wounded his pride or something my personal opinion is that, of course, when you're documenting something for such a long time, information tends to come your way, whether you're looking for it or not. You know, so I've spoken to a lot of people. I've, I've probably met with 100 people, sat down and interviewed at least 30 of them. So you hear a lot of things. And I think that one of the concerns might be that I have information that he doesn't want me to put out there. Now, of course, you know you hear things, but I'm not. This isn't. I'm not TMZ. This isn't an investigative report. There's a lot of information that that uh, that I've been privy to that's not going to be in the documentary because it's to nobody's benefit. And I think that that's something that's not understood at their end. That this is uh, th- this is a celebration of the room. It's a celebration of Tommy's uniqueness and, and somebody who turned a crappy movie into uh, into a great success. So as far as as Tommy. Has your opinion of him changed or your perception of him as a person or an artist or whatever changed since you started making the film until now? Well, as far as the record goes, I haven't spoken to Tommy directly about this issue. I'm speaking to him uh, through his, and I'm throwing up my, my quotations here, his assistant who goes by the name of Raul and who, you know, coincidentally writes the exact same way that Tommy talks, but I'm not going to make any assumptions here. So I'm dealing with his uh, admin assistant who goes by the name Raul. But as far as Wiseau Films as a whole, I'm, I'm very disappointed. I'm very, very disappointed. I'm open to having a discussion with them about this. Um, I did ask to speak with Tommy directly because I'm not too sure who this Raul person is and, and what his role in this is. But, um, you know, like I said, I sent them a very nice letter. It was very polite and professional. And, uh, you know, asked if, if they wanted to collaborate with us, if they want to work with us uh, through these issues that they have. Because at the end of the day, this documentary is definitely being made. If I have to go out in the middle of a field and project it onto a white sheet, everyone is going to see a room full of spoons. But, uh, you know, I, like I said, I, I haven't gotten a response from, uh, f- from him yet uh, about this, uh, like a response to my email yet. And the whole situation is just uh, just very disappointing. I mean... I don't know how somebody can expect to not want to collaborate on something yet have full control over it. That makes no sense to me. Mm. And it seems to like from the last podcast that we did, it seems like you admire him and the work that he created. You know, you're like the best possible person to be making a doc about this film and about uh, him, you know? Thanks, man. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm a real fan. I'm a real, real fan. This is, uh, you know, I watched the room. 
I would go see it like on a monthly basis for a year before even getting to meet Tommy. We were always cool, man. Like we, we had a good uh, relationship. And, um, you know, I started doing this documentary. I think it went a little bit further than he expected. But, I mean, that's, that's what documentaries are, right? You never really know when the, when the story is over. I don't know what it is exactly that's, uh, that, that's making him so worried about this movie coming out. This project is in the right hands. This is, this is coming from the ultimate fan. I'm not trying to, uh, I think he said that I was bashing him on, uh, over Twitter. He said this documentary is bashing me and, and, uh, and it's hateful and, and all this, this craziness. And I don't know where that's coming from. Like, I mean, which fan do you know will go out there and spend uh, tens of thousands of dollars and travel all over America and spend four years of his life making a movie and, you know, and just, just to, to, to bash it or slander him or something like that? I have nothing against this man other than his behavior towards me at this moment. I, I have nothing against uh, Tommy Wiseau. Has he seen a cut or any footage or anything like that? Have you shown him any? No, nothing that's not already online. No, and again, I, I would probably be open to that, but if you'd respond to me properly and not, not, not publicly try to discredit the documentary. So it seems like just his perception of the project is like totally skewed at this point. Yeah, well, I mean, and it's no secret that Tommy's perception of a lot of things is different than everyone else's. I mean, anyone who's seen the trailer says, no, this is, this is fun. I mean, the whole tone of it is positive. Even the music is, is light and, and, and it's, uh, you know, for God's sake, I, I say that he conquered the American dream and he's a legit Hollywood celebrity. I don't know how that's, how that's slanderous or, or, or hateful towards him. But again, like we're talking about the same person who uh, did an interview with um, Steve uh, Heisler from um, the AV Club. And he was bashing Kristen Bell. I mean, Kristen Bell was instrumental in, in promoting the room. She went on Jimmy Kimmel and showed the cover and said how amazing the movie is, and, you know, and, and promoted it to the millions of people that, uh, that watched the Jimmy Kimmel show. And, you know, so how can you find it in you to, to bash Kristen Bell in an interview when she did so much to help promote you? So, I mean, it's, he loses a little bit of credibility in, in that sense, but it doesn't change the fact that this is, uh, you know, it, it, it's still puts a damper on my project and uh and i guess i'll put it out there now but there's uh, i just on friday got a notice from kickstarter that uh Wiseau films have put in a claim uh citing copyright violations and our kickstarter campaign is going to be down for 10 days effective uh, this week so is it monday night so what's that process where it's down for 10 days well they put in a claim now i believe the process is automated no we have to understand that kickstarter are not copyright experts, they're not film experts. So all they know is that they get a claim citing copyright violations. I have three days to reply to that claim. And then my understanding is that that goes back to wise those people and then they have 10 days to action it legally or else the, uh, or else the Kickstarter campaign goes up. So of course we're taking uh, you know, measures at our end to make sure that, uh, that everything is good and that the, the, we are within our rights. And to make sure that the Kickstarter campaign is going to be back up after those 10 days, which it definitely will. But uh, in the meantime, it looks like the project will be put on hold temporarily. What's your, uh, what's your game plan if they shut it down? We've had several people reach out to us already as far as um, private investors. So we have uh, some people who are interested in being a part of this movie. They, they understand the potential. They understand the, the audience that we have already. I mean, uh, just to throw out some, some statistics, we have uh, over 8,000 followers on Facebook for our, our project, you know, and, and it's not even done yet. And we already have a, a, a very large audience. Uh, you know, on Twitter, we have a few thousand followers as well. We have many, many supporters worldwide. And I get emails from people in, in the UK on a regular basis, uh, people, fans in Australia, uh, Sweden, from all over the world who are back in this project. 
So, you know, we have 150 something backers already for the, the Kickstarter campaign who are excited for this movie. And it's, it's only been, you know, the campaign's only been out for eight days. So I'm confident that the campaign will continue after these 10 days because uh, we haven't done anything wrong. And like I said, if there is something that I did miss, it's going to be verified legally and we'll adjust the campaign and it'll be back up. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, everything is covered under fair use. All the other clips that we have have been uh, licensed. We have waivers for, uh, for, for everything else, um, you know, signed release forms. We've paid for all the music. Everything we've done is, has been above board. We, have, we truly have nothing to hide here. So I don't want to ask you to give a psychological profile of anybody else or anything like that, but between this and the Kristen Bell thing, it just seems like for me, who only knows about any of this stuff sort of from a spectator point of view, that it almost feels like some kind of either lingering or growing like discomfort with the movie itself, the room. Um, yeah, if, if I had to guess, you know, I would just say that Tommy has some discomfort with himself and there's probably some stuff out there that he doesn't want to be made public. But again, like I said, you know, I without asking or without really digging for this information, a lot of stuff just sort of came my way after talking to so many people for so many years. And I can understand that. I mean, everybody has stuff in their life that, that you don't necessarily want to come out. When you're a celebrity, it's a lot easier for, for, for that stuff to come out. But that's not my intention. There's, there's, uh, there's certain things that I know that, that would never come out because that's just nobody's business. And it has nothing to do with the story that I'm trying to tell, which is just, you know, Tommy Wiseau's path to success. You know, uh, a crappy movie that, uh, that, that everybody loves now and, and became a huge cult film and, and the whole celebration around it. I mean, everybody loves this guy. I mean, he, he definitely draws the eye and, and he made a movie whether, you know, people want to say it's good or bad. It's fascinating. And that's the story that I'm trying to tell. So, you know, I can understand his discomfort to a point, but he has to understand that this project is in good hands and I only have the best intentions. And, and I'm... And I'm still willing to, uh, to to discuss this with them directly to see exactly what his concerns are, and hopefully we can uh, we, we can work around this together. Yeah, maybe we'll have you guys on the show together. <laughs> How about that? Wouldn't that How be a dream? That? Yeah. It sounds like we're at the point where we need a making of documentary about your making of documentary. <laughs> you know, we joked about that before. And for the record, Tommy is definitely going to hear this podcast. He heard the last one. He uh, there's a one point during the podcast, the last one, where you guys ask about the script. And I believe my quote is, I don't think there was a script because everyone that I spoke to in the room, uh, from the room, said that all they got was a couple pages every day. And that's uh, sort of where the discussion uh, took off from there. Now, I think Tommy, for some reason, took great offense to this because he went as far as to go through all the behind the scenes footage that he shot during the making of the room and cut a two and a half minute video. It's sort of like, have you ever seen... Um, Cinema sins, like when, when they're yeah, trying to make yeah. a point, they write everything in bold and you hear the, the gunshots. So he made a, like a, a video like that saying the room script does exist. Shame on you. You know who you are. Oh, man. And he put this all, all over his social media. And every time the script shows up, he, he circles it and it goes bing, bing, bing. And of course, every time it's shown, it's just a couple of pages, just like I said in the podcast, right? I even like painted that in like a flattering light when we were talking about it because a lot of directors. Yeah, you do said that. Woody Allen did that. Yeah, Woody Allen does that. A lot of guys do that. You know. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think he's for some reason just choosing to see the negative in this, which is, uh, or I, I don't know exactly what his motivation is at this point. But he was uh, tweeting this out obsessively. I think like every uh, twenty minutes to an hour, he's tweeting this out to his fans. This video, you know who you are. We don't support room full of spoons. He uh, put it out on Facebook to his hundred and eighteen thousand fans, and and it's just while like I I must admit it's it's excellent publicity. 
You know, it's excellent publicity for us, and I'm pretty sure we've gained some fans and you know because of it. But at the same time, it's just you know why can't we just work together on this? The movie's happening, whether you're happy about it or not. So let's just work together and, and try to make the you know the best project possible, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it must suck for you because listening to the last one, it seems like you really you had kind of a good rapport going with him, and it feels like he should have just been able to come up to you with his. That's concerns. what I would have hoped. That's what I would have hoped, and and you know and. Uh, Right now, I'm I'm only uh, getting messages from uh, from his uh, administrative assistant Raúl, and uh, and I've asked to speak directly with Tommy. I've emailed Tommy directly, and then I was told that I had the wrong email address, which um, I know I don't, but that's fine. And uh, so I forwarded my letter to Tommy to his assistant and told him I'd like to hear back directly from Tommy. And and it was a very positive and and friendly toned uh, toned letter. Who knows? I might even put it out there for everyone to read. You know, but um, but yeah, and I was very disappointed that I didn't hear back. And instead, all I get is these, these different threats for legal action and, and all this nonsense. I mean, if, if you want to threaten me with legal action, I mean, not to say go ahead. I mean, nobody really wants to go through that. But then why do you continue slandering me over social media? Just if you really, truly believe that you have a claim, well, maybe you should do something about that. But uh I'm not here to make any suggestions that, that might hinder my project, but, uh, I mean, that's the reality of it, right? Yeah. Well, Tommy, we would love to have you on the show. If you're listening, we want your take. Me and Cody, we'll, we'll, we'll sit with you guys. We'll help you hash this out. We'll uh, give you and Rick a nice big public venue to just sort through this. I think that'd be fantastic. All right, so, Rick, I have a question that I've always wanted to ask you. We're friends on the old Facebook, and I noticed, like, I guess it was like a year ago, your daughter met Robert Englund? Yes, she did. You know, your daughter's pretty young. I think you have two kids, right? Yeah, I do. Jaden and Joelle, three years old and uh, 10. And you started them on horror pretty young, right? Yeah, well, started them is, is, is a funny choice of words because it's not something that like, I, I forced on them. But, you know, horror movies are a big part of my life. And, it, uh, you know, it's, it's a fun part of my life. It's something that's been, a, I guess you could say, a hobby of mine for since I was a kid, so it's something that I, I introduced to them at a young age, yeah. So how do you introduce horror movies to a young kid? Like, what's that process like? Well, when I was young, it's, it's kind of funny, because my mom was, is a big horror fan, and she's the one that put me on the horror films, and I remember uh, being real young, I think I was in grade three or four, so however old that made me, like uh, seven or eight, and uh, we would go to the video store and rent a bunch of movies. And the next day, she'd call in sick at work. And then she'd call the school and say, oh, you know, Richard's sick. And uh, we'd watch horror movies all day. Now, of course, it's not, you know, I don't go crazy and, and show my kid just anything, right? So it's, it's, it's a, I wouldn't say a slow progression into the, into the darker or violent horror films. But, yeah, they're not watching you know, Serbian film or whatever. No, no, nor will, nor will she ever. You know, no, but, <laughs> what is she like? What is, what is she into? Uh, well, we started off watching like sort of cheesy um, 80s flicks. So we'd watch like, uh, I don't mean, even mean to see, say cheesy, but, you know, we watched like the uh, Evil Dead movies. We watched um, like House. Uh, oh, that's fun. How yeah. old was she at this point? Uh, five or six. And she was yeah. watching Evil Dead? Oh, yeah. They're oh, like yeah. Big Absolutely. cartoons. I mean, they're like Looney Tunes movies. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Especially yeah, the first Evil Dead with all that like claymation stuff. Yeah. What yeah. about you when, when your mom showed you that? What was that for you? The first, I, I guess, horror movie or, or film or whatever that you could, you could say that I watched was, uh, was a thriller video. Huh. The Michael, Michael Jackson thriller. That shit is, you know, scared like, me when I was a kid, dude. With absolutely. his eyes. 
It's like top 10 movies of the 80s, I think, thriller. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was my first, that was my introduction to horror was uh, Michael Jackson thriller. You know what uh, scared me even more about that is um, when they would run that on TV, they would do like some day where they would just run tons of Michael Jackson stuff on like VH1 or MTV. And there was always like, they would run thriller in its entirety and then they would run the making of thriller like right afterwards. And when it would cut to the making of thriller, it cut to like this guy in like a skull mask or something like talking about the making of thriller. And that part used to scare the (laughs) fucking shit out of me. And it was just some guy behind the scenes with like some creepy mask. And that part like fucked me up. Oh, that's awesome, man. I'm going to have to look it up on YouTube or something. Yeah. If I can find that, I'll post the link because that's, that was a real pivotal moment for me. Awesome. But yeah, so we watched uh, like all the, 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 well, the first three Chucky movies, the ones that matter. We actually watched them on VHS, which was kind of cool. And then uh, Comic-Con was coming to, uh, to Montreal, so just about two hours from here, and Robert England was going to be there. So I took that as an opportunity. I'm like, okay, now it's time to show Jaden uh, Freddy. So she was nine. Yeah, she's 10 now, so she was nine, and we started watching the Freddy movies, and she loved them. I mean, they're, they're fun. They're, you know, the violence isn't too crazy by today's standards. And the thing is, too, was that the special effects back then weren't as convincing as, as effects today, right? So she mm. watches it, and it's sort of like, okay, like, yeah, I get it. it. This is how they did it, or it's kind of, you know, the blood is way too red or whatever. So she, she gets that it's, it's, like you said, a little bit cartoony, right? Yeah, it feels like playtime, because you really can tell that, like, they're wearing costumes and sort of, like, gooped up. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we watched the entire Freddy series. I think we watched one movie a day for, like, a week or a week and a half or something Cody, like that. Cody, you did that, too. <laughs> yeah, I did that uh, not too long ago, I guess about a year ago, because I hadn't, I had seen, you know, the first one, but I hadn't seen the rest of them, and they, it was one of those things where, like, the whole set on Blu-ray was on sale for, like, 20 bucks, and I was like, all right, fuck it, let me just blow through all of them. Oh, that's awesome. Man. I ended up loving the fourth one. I think that's that one's really underrated. I think it's gorgeous. I think that's the best looking one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My, my favorite one. And I, I mean, I think amongst the fans, uh, Dream Warriors is, is probably everyone's favorite. The Frank one in the uh, one. The one in, yeah, in the insane asylum. I love the music in that. You know, I love docking. So I was always a okay. Friday the 13th person. I mean, I like Halloween more than, you know, any of them. But of the, the Freddy Jason thing, I always came down on Jason. I like the simplicity of them. Yeah, I think I was a Freddy fan only because there was a little bit more depth to his character, or a lot more depth, I should say. You know, oh, he had yeah, a really he was cool, he was a character, amazing backstory, and uh, and I mean, he was funny as hell. He was a pretty uh, just an overall cool character. If if you can overlook the fact that he's a fucking child molester, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it's funny. But, it starts to change in in the third one, in the Darabont one. He becomes like more fun in that because yeah. in the first two, he's like super creepy. Yeah, and then yeah, he yeah. starts being. He starts making a lot of jokes in the third one, and you get this sort of like sunglasses wearing, skiing, uh, power glove, exactly. Freddy they, from they, all they, the other ones. Yeah, they, they, it's funny. They sort of turned it into uh, almost a satire of, of the first couple ones, yeah. but, uh, but it really worked. It made his character better. It's not like, like the, uh, the like Child's Play movies where as soon as it went to CGI, like after four and five and Bride and Seed and all this crap, it just, he was making jokes, and it almost seemed like, Oh, okay, you didn't like Bride? I actually liked Bride. <laughs> Nah, man. When I think started- I just I just liked the part. It was either Bride or Seed, but where um I think it was Red Man from Wu Tang Clan where he gets like eviscerated under the glass table. That's just like yeah. my favorite scene in any of them. 
I, I guess I took those movies seriously though, man. Like when I found yeah. the first, the, the first three, like I really liked it. So then when they're coming out with Bride and Seed, it just seemed like a farce, like a joke, you know? Oh, they completely and, were. I mean, yeah, they that's, were super trashy. I've avoided those later ones for that reason. And I, I don't like three that much. I love two. I think two is fantastic. And I like the, the first one as well. Yeah. One holds up really well. I, I remember I rewatched it like maybe two Halloweens ago and I was surprised at how good it still is. Yeah. 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 It was funny. I was on uh, Kijiji looking for a VHS player and um just to add to my studio and i found one for, for 20 bucks and then the guy's like oh yeah and it comes with 150 uh vhs tapes too so i'm like score so i went there Cody's and, eyes just bugged out of his head when he said that. <laughs> yeah i just looked like a tex avery cartoon for a second <laughs> so i load up my trunk and i get home and i see and i had uh yeah i had the, the uh, child's play one two three i had uh evil dead one and two uh believe possibly even uh, army of darkness and and I had just all types of gold in there, so I That's plugged in the VHS. That's fucking incredible. Yeah, man. Yeah, horror so horror I, I, was built for VHS because you had the bigger box art. Yeah. And like, I have so many movies, I remember the covers as as well and distinct from the movies. Absolutely. Like it was I, a big part of it. Yeah, I remember my dad had a lot of VHSs when I was a kid. My, my dad's a big horror guy. I remember when I was like five or six, like my mom would go out for errands, and then my dad would put on a horror movie before she got back. So nice. we would watch, yeah, we'd watch like House on Haunted Hill and like The Haunting and the first couple Alien movies. And I just, I remember like the box art very well. I remember when Alien 3 came out on VHS, I remember my dad like special ordered an Alien box set, which had one, two, a bootleg of the director's cut of two, which had never been officially released at that point, and three. And this would have been like 1992 or three or something. And just like sitting and looking at the cover, the, the first one was... um it, it was the the poster with the egg and everything, and the third one was her bald, and you just like you're dying to know how she got there, you know. Right, I love the right, old right. VHS covers. There's so much life in them, and House oh, on Haunted Hill with the skeleton holding the noose as the cover. That was like the best thing. The box art was a big deal, a very very big deal in horror films. You know, like I uh, I remember just going into the horror section. They had it blocked off like they would like a porn section. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I will, I will, I would go in there and, and I would have like, this is, I was such a geek, man. I would go in there with like a pad and pen and just look at the covers and be like, okay, I'm going to put this on my list, put this on my list, you know? And it was just, it was just so much fun. And, and I guess that's why I show my kids the, the, these movies because it was such a big part of yeah. my childhood while everyone else is playing with G.I. Joe's and, 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 you know, talking about the latest episode of, uh, of Inspector Gadget. Like I had this sort of underground world that I was a part of that, that no one else's parents would really let them into, you know what I mean? And, and I, I try yeah. to, share that with my daughter and like i said within reason right like i don't um you know i wouldn't show my daughter anything that's like sexually violent or, or nothing like that like even as a horror fan i don't really dig that you know yeah but and that's uh, the beauty of horror i mean there's so much stuff that you don't need to go into you know exactly like you can you can go into the pool as deep as you want to when there's still enough you know you don't yeah. need to go all the way to the deep end if you don't exactly. want exactly no, I was going to say a lot of people don't don't understand that say oh my god i can't believe you show your kids horror movies you show them horror movies i'm like yeah we have so much fun like it's you know, and that's the thing. Like, a lot of Disney movies are almost made to make children cry. Like, they're super oh, sad. Oh, yeah. It's like a horror movie. The, the Night you on Ball Mountain in Fantasia is straight up a horror movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, so it's like, how, how can you judge when, you know, I'm, I'm watching, I mean, as a grown man, I watched Toy Story 3 and got sad at the end. I had yeah. to fight tears at the end. <laughs> you know, so 
any movie is going to put you through certain uh, um, emotional, like give you like some a certain emotional reaction. And being scared is fun, man. Like my daughter, yeah. she also goes on roller coasters. It scares the shit out of her. But when it's over, it's like, wow, that was a blast. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a yeah, rush. It's, a, it's a quicker thing. Like if you're watching a horror movie and there's like a jump scare, it's like what? Two seconds of your life. But like there are Disney movies that are so fucking manipulative and just get under your skin and you'll be crying for like a day after if you're a kid. Absolutely. You know? I remember Absolutely. when I was like 11 or 12, I had ordered through the mail a VHS of Dawn of the Dead which was like still kind of hard to get at that point. And it delivered to me and it landed on the doorstep on a rainy day and the power cut out. So I spent all day and all night in like the pouring thunderstorm rain with Dawn of the Dead on VHS with that cover where it's just the silhouette of the guy wearing the gas mask. Just like imagining the movie in my head for a whole day before I got to watch it, which I ended up loving it. It's still one of my favorites, but like, it's just that sort of like, there's something so evocative about those movies and something so like, like they're, they're just so exciting and you, you want to like interact with them and be a part of them. Yeah. It feels interactive, even though you're not actually in it. Like just the, yeah. the story structure, it really, it, it's almost like the loving, like choose your adventure novels when you're a kid. Like I was always really big into those and it just feels like that same thing where you're really like in the same boat with the characters. It's just so basic. It's such just like a, it, that's like a 10,000 year old part of your brain you're accessing, you know, probably yeah. like, a, like a 40 million year old, just like lizard brain that activates. And that, that's just such a cool feeling. And it's cool that like a filmmaker can do that with paranormal activity was $11,000. You know, you can do that with a weekend and $11,000. You can just give somebody that, that like ultimate art reaction. Bringing it back to box art. I used to love how like you know, the more low budget horrors, you know, not the, like the major studio ones, they would show you like the most gory stuff, like on the back of the box to make sure that you actually get the movie. Yeah. Um, I remember one of my favorites in that regard was this movie Anthropophagus or something. I forget oh, the, the cannibal one. Yeah. I forget how to actually pronounce the title, but they would show like all like the, the best gory bits, like just in little you know, boxes on the back of the box art. Yeah. Well, everybody remembers the poster in the box art for um, Zombie, even the people who haven't seen it. With the, oh, yeah. We are going to eat you and the decaying guy with the worms coming out of That's his eyes. That's a hell of a fucking cover, man. Yeah, it's yeah, an EC comics. Was, oh, yeah. That was that was scary as hell. I, I, I don't even think I've seen the movie, but I remember exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, even people who've never seen oh, it. Yeah. And you should see it. It's a great movie. It's really, uh, it's beautifully shot and it's, it's very strange. It has this like dreamy vibe. But it's really well put together. It's I wouldn't a, show your kid it. She's a little too young for that one, but you should see that right. one. And it's kind cool. of like a yeah. Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, well, more like Temple of Doom kind of like skeleton looking zombie guy. He called them, they were the Fulci ones, which he called uh, potted plant zombies. Yeah. Because it's like he just slapped like <laughs> dirt and moss all over them. Which is the best yeah. look for them. It, it's a really, really good look. It's a really clever take. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. It's one of those that's been on my list for a while, but it's just like, when do you get around to it type of thing? There's always seems to be something else, you know? But now that it's been brought up, I'm uh, going to make a note to watch Zombie for sure. Yeah, it's it's just a fun one. It's really, um, it, it's sort of like globetrotting too. Like there's a little bit of like 70s New York in it, and then most of it's on this island in the Caribbean. And it, there's just sort of like a lot of different locations you go through in it, which is rare, I think, for a horror movie. Have any like really scared her? Uh, you know what? It's it's kind of funny. Like we've watched uh, a lot of flicks, you know, but like 
One that I thought was really scary uh, more recently was The Conjuring. And I thought that that was going to really scare the shit out of her. She watched it about three times and really loved it. And, uh, <laughs> She's tougher than then, you. Yeah, but then she watched um, Annabelle, which was a spinoff of The Conjuring. And uh, not a very good movie, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and that scared the hell out of her. It turned her off horror movies for like a month. She had, <laughs> <Really>? to sleep, <laughs> she, she had to sleep with the light on. She had this little lamp in her room. That's like uh like the like the lamp the base of the lamp is a doll and I guess it somehow resembled uh Annabelle and I had to take it out of her room and <laughs> she's gonna hate the fact that I'm talking about this, but <laughs> Annabelle really, really scared the hell out of her. It's but, funny uh, it's funny the ones that'll get to you. It's almost like there's no logic to it. Just like at a certain point one of them is just gonna like hit you. Yeah, it's some like uh mix of colors and light and sound that just triggers something in you yeah. just because i remember when i was about her age and i saw the shining and i was just like dunzo that one <laughs> terrified me but see the shining is a masterpiece though i mean that is genuinely a really really scary movie yeah whereas whereas annabelle is just it's fluff right like it's it's kind yeah. of silly i mean i mean i guess something something about it i guess must have just like something, yeah. something about it just lined up with her that's it. That's there were it, parts man, of, you, of Sinister, which was not a very good movie, that just like really got me. And I wasn't expecting yeah. it to, because who thinks Sinister is going to get them? But like, there, there may be like two or three scenes in that movie that something about it, it's like a solar eclipse. It just like lines up with your fears. And I was like, God damn. Yeah, I guess uh, different things resonate with different people. You know, we even watched uh, you know, what was widely considered uh, the, the scariest movie of uh, 2014, The Babadook. And um, and that didn't scare her. I thought for no? sure that was going to scare her, you know. And uh, have you heard of that movie, The Babadook? Yeah, I really like that. I've seen that. I think maybe three times now, actually. Yeah, and same. It it didn't scare me at all the first time, but then the second time I watched it, it really scared me. And I think it was because like my defenses were very low, because the first okay. time I was going in expecting a really scary movie, and then the second time it was, I was going in, you know, knowing I'd already seen it. So what do you was, make of the end of that film, uh, John? I thought it was um, something that you could only get away with in horror or maybe science fiction, where like the the theme of the movie took over from like the literalness of the movie, you know? Yeah. Okay. Like it, it's almost like the ending of Taxi Driver, where the 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 last scene feels like a metaphor. Right, and that that was my my question because I, I thought this is such a well written and and acted uh, movie that I, I couldn't tell if I missed something at the end or if it was just a bit of a cop-out. You know, you, know you, have like, to, you have to look at it this way, I think. Just look at the last scene as the last page of the Babadook book that they're reading. Okay. And just imagine her reading this book that terrified that kid to the kid, and, you know, you take him through the whole story, and then at the end, it's kind of okay. You okay, know? And so I, I guess I'll be watching it for a fourth time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think it's a... a home run of an ending it's not you know it's not one of the greats but the second time around i came i came around on that ending i thought i i, I see what she was trying to do but i think it's kind of nice to have a horror movie with like a gentle ending it's so rare yeah i i don't know see i, I have a problem with happy endings that sounds yeah. really morbid <laughs> so, i can see tommy but... Wiseau like taking that quote out of context <laughs> and using it against you <laughs> what, but, uh, uh, what what are your favorite horror movie endings have you seen the mist oh yes yeah, see, the Mist was 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 like a like a four star movie. All right, I'm talking out of ten here. It was like a four star movie it was just okay until the end. Then it, was, it bumped it right up to like eight and a half. Oh yeah, that, that was ending. Such, such a, a ballsy run. ending. 
You yeah. know, Stephen King said that uh, when he saw the movie, and King's like really famous for wanting the um, the movies to be like his books. He said when he saw that ending that he wished he had written it that way in the book. Which really, I yeah. was really cool. Yeah. Was, yeah, it, yeah. was there two different endings at some point? I feel like there were two different cuts of the film, or maybe I'm just thinking of the There's black, a black and white, and, white and a color version, but they both end okay. the same. Did you ever see the black and white version of it, Rick? No, man, I didn't even know there was one. It's on the Blu-ray because uh, Darabont really wanted to do the movie in black and white, and the studio wouldn't let him. So when they okay. put it on DVD and Blu-ray, they uh, just post-converted it. And it's kind of really cool. It, I think it's a better movie in black and white because you can see that he's going for this like mid-60s kind of vibe. Like you kind of like, like you get it in this different sort of context, this kind of like Night of the Living Dead sort of trapped in a room with like goop monsters kind of vibe. It's pretty, it's worth watching it that way. Do any of the effects look better in black and white? Oh yeah, they all do. Mm. But I think that's probably true of any movie. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, it's a good example of that is, um, I remember I had this like crappy J-Win DVD player, which I had because it was like an all region. And um, I was watching Toxic Avenger on it, and it couldn't get it to play in color. I could only get it to play in black and white. And you know that great scene where like uh, the assholes are like running over people with their car, and they chase down like the oh, boy the and they hit yeah. the kid. Yeah. That scene in black and white is fucking amazing, <laughs> and it looks great in color too. And I love, I love that scene. I love that movie. But it takes on this like great almost like a death proof, like Tarantino sinister vibe in black and white that it just loses the campiness of color. And it just goes into like this, like what the fuck am I watching right now? Because all because of it just being in black and white. I gotta, I gotta try that now. I it, love it's almost gorier. It's almost gorier because you don't see the color of like his head getting smashed and all that. It's, no, was it's a trip. Black and white. Yeah, it was totally accidental. Like I, hey. The DVD was uh, the DVD player was just fucking acting up. It would do that sometimes, or it would just play black and white. Toxic <laughs> Avenger is one of those movies that's just built for like happy accidents. Like you got to watch that movie in like the worst format you can find it. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's one that's like made for VHS. Yeah, that's made for like a third generation VHS too. <laughs> yeah, you a big trauma guy? Um, I I like trauma. I, I like trauma. Not a not a huge uh, trauma guy, but I get what they're trying to do and appreciate it. You know, like I really like the you know Tromas War, Tromeo and Juliet. Uh, you know, a, a, a lot of their films. But um, yeah, I even reached out to, to Lloyd Kaufman at one point when I was trying to take the documentary in a bit of a different direction and try to get the perspective of different uh, you know cult filmmakers and stuff like that. And he was really cool. We had a good conversation and stuff, but uh, we didn't end up interviewing for the film, interviewing him for the film. But he's he seems like a really cool guy, though. That's really interesting. Yeah, they have a big footprint around here. Um... At all the horror movie conventions and stuff, there's always just a lot of trauma floating around. I knew this bartender who was, she was, uh, she was like a, a PA on a bunch of trauma movies. And I just sat with her and she told me all these great stories about those, the, the like mid nineties ones and all the, the sets and everything painting, um, toy baseball bats, like silver for some of the scenes and that's great. I'm going to repaint them cause all the paint chips would fly off when they'd hit people and just, <laughs> All the like weird, gross stuff they had to have people do, standing in like muck and handling meat all the time. Yeah, they're such cool filmmakers, man. Lloyd is, uh, Lloyd's, uh, I think he's a genius, you know, he, he really, uh, I think he invented his own sort of genre of horror film, you know, and I bought, um, there was this four DVD box set called Make Your Own Damn Movie. 
Oh it's, yeah, oh, yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, and he wrote a yeah. couple books in that regard too. Yeah, I read yeah. "Produce Your Own Damn Movie" before we shot uh, Green Brothers. That was like they, I, there are like three books I read before I started doing this one, and that was that was one of them. What'd His. you take from it? Like, what's something? I mean, real it's valuable? the same thing you take from it that you take from the Corman stuff. Where the trick is to just sort of constantly be aware of what you have available. You know, I think like the the great lesson of low budget filmmaking is just like know what what's around you, what you can use in your movie, what looks different, you know, who, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. That becomes your budget essentially. Yeah. And I mean, that becomes, I mean, sorry, that becomes your production values. Yeah. Yeah. That, exactly. that was a great book. Like look at uh, someone like um, uh, Roger Avery who did killing Zoe. Yeah. The only, the only reason that they did killing Zoe is because they had a bank that they could film in. That was it. It's like, someone was like, Oh, we have a bank. Uh, do you have a script? He's like, Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I'm going to write one. And they wrote a script <laughs> around what they had available and turned into a pretty cool movie, you know? Yeah. yeah I love that. And that's, that's like the story of half the horror movies ever made. Yeah. That's my Very favorite true. like impulse. Like I love when people build things around locations. I was telling Cody before, um, I just watched this movie the other day called death curse of the Tartu. Have you ever heard of it? No, man. I'd never heard of it either. It's, I keep my eye out for, like a few different settings in movies. If anything's shot in the Bronx, I'll see it. If anything's shot in the Everglades, I'll see it. And this was an Everglades movie. It's just this one Florida guy. I think his name was William Greaves, I want to say. He was a filmmaker in the 60s in Florida who just sort of did the um, the drive-in circuit when that became a, a viable option. And this is like a mummy movie set in the Everglades. And it's, it's just, you know, like five people and a camera and all the sounds post-dubbed. But it's really cool because it, it sort of captures the real feeling of the area, you know, that like a lot of the extras are like Seminole Indians and there's a lot of just sort of like local flavor in it. And you can see the the peculiar like weather patterns there, the way rain comes in and just stops. And it's all this like really sort of natural stuff that I think horror is really great for that kind of just like life. Very cool. Sorry, what's that called again? Death Curse of the Tartu. It's um, I think you can find it. Somebody uploaded it to either YouTube or Daily Motion or one of those ones. It's it's streaming somewhere. Cool, cool, Cody. I guess you'll tag that on the site, and I, I got my homework for the week. Yeah, I'll put a link to it when I put the episode up. Yeah. Awesome. I, I don't know if you guys will get out of it. What I did, I just I, I spent a lot of time in the Everglades when I was a kid. So like, whenever you see something shot in a place you really like and they nail it, it always gets like a few extra points for you. Yeah, you were telling me I think on one of the old episodes, but. Uh adaptation and spring breakers that pretty much that's florida for you right yeah and i'd throw this one on the pile too nice all right we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with some questions from the mailbag see you soon and now chloe peltier reviewing a movie she's seen parts of while working at the theater okay go see whiplash it's so good it makes me bad at my job i usually drop checks in it and then I have to go do something else in the theater next door and I forget to do something else in the theater next door because it sucks me in and I'm staring at the screen and I can't peel myself away. It's like some damn hypnotism shit. Most movies, even the engaging ones, they do not do that to me. I have a lot of willpower, damn it. And this one, the dynamic between the two guys is so fucking good. There's so much nonverbal communication. The editing is really snappy. It goes with the music so well. And it's just entertaining. I can tell that it's got a good message to it. And I really just want to sit down and watch it. And I'm not just saying this because of the Oscars or something. I'm just saying it looks like a good fucking movie. It looks solid. So go see it. Thanks, Chloe. And now back to the show. 
So before we do the mailbag, just a quick question. We should have asked it last time, but how was it meeting uh, Robert England? Uh, it was really cool, man. Robert's a really, really nice guy. You know, we uh, went to the Comic-Con in Montreal. And of course, I'm, I'm with my daughter, right? And there's a ton of people in line. And, and you don't really know if he's going to be annoyed or if he's been doing this for a couple of days. So, you know, we got up there and he was really a uh, super pleasant guy, really cool. He was happy to, uh, to, to meet my kid and that there's such a, a young fan interested in Freddie, right? Like not a lot of kids are... are are into movies that came out in the, in the 80s. And yeah, he was really nice to sign a poster for her. He wrote, uh, you know, to Jaden, welcome to primetime, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> That's and great. Then, uh, she asked for a picture and he's like, well, the Comic-Con people aren't really, uh, you know, they sort of frown on that, but uh, come over here with Uncle Freddie. We'll take a quick, uh, take a quick picture, you know? So she got a <laughs> selfie with, with Robert England. Was, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send it to you guys if you want to put it on the site. It was, was kind of cute. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah we could post that. All right, so let's open up the mailbag. We have a question today from Anthony, and he asks, how does the aspect ratio impact the movie? Are there any notable cases where a movie is just the wrong shape? I think Avatar really fucked up by being 1.78. Do you think he thought Avatar should be wider? I guess, I, yeah, I I guess that's what he's that. saying. Yeah. It's sort of like an epic. Maybe it should have been like Lawrence of Arabia's format, you know, that wide 235 or something. Mm. I could see that. It's weird that Aliens is um, 16 by 9, because Alien was uh, 235, and then Aliens is sort of a, a tighter, smaller kind of a frame. And it, Do you think that works for it? I get why Cameron likes it, because Terminator 1 is the same sort of way, but... I mean, honest, I, personally, I, I'm never that into, like, the super wide stuff. I like, you know, 185, 178. I'd like to, now that I think about it, I would like to see a wider version of Aliens. Because I think near the end where they're in the, um, like the egg chamber and all that stuff. Mm. And I think it would just be like another small way to make it feel sort of in a continuum with the first movie. Because if, if you look now, it seems like a lot of people have trouble with Aliens now who didn't see it when they were younger. Who see it for the first time now. They, I, it, it's a little jarring that it comes off of the first one. And maybe even just the small step of widening it would create that sort of continuity of space. Wasn't on the waterfront shot in like three different aspect ratios? It was 166, it was, you know, Academy ratio, it was 185 or something. I didn't know about that. Dr. Strangelove is. Yeah. And it, it was a big problem with Dr. Strangelove, the DVD, because they, they had a lot of fights. Kubrick in general, they have a lot of fights over what oh my God. the intended ratio is. All over the internet with that fucking shit, dude. Because for the people who don't know, <laughs> Kubrick always wanted to shoot wide, but after... Um, 2001 which was butchered whenever they played it on tv there's a famous story that one time they played you really can only play 2001 in its native ratio which is i think 235 to one right which for the people who don't know means that it's almost two and a half times longer than it is tall so when you put it on a on an old tube tv you either had to zoom in big time which means you're missing most of the movie or you had to shrink it down so the first TV broadcast of 2001, they put little stars on the tops and the bottoms in the letterbox bars to make it seem like it was just outer space, which is a very confusing and terrible decision. But after that whole debacle, Kubrick always had a, a TV-safe version of all his movies. Right. So there's all these fights when they're doing the Blu-rays and all the DVDs, like, which version is it? Yeah, and for those listening, when they say TV-safe, they mean, you know... Yes, it looks good super wide, but it has to be framed so that if you were to crop it, there's nothing necessary that would necessarily be lost and it still looks like a good, well-framed yeah. shot. I go back and forth on it, but I always think that they should go with the um, the one 1.66 version of the Kubrick ones. 
I think they just look a little better with less headroom. Yeah. The weird thing too that you see with TV stuff specifically is that when when stuff started being 16.9, they still had to do it safe for 4.3. So for a lot of time, shows would be, yeah, it would be in 16.9, but everything of value would be in the center of the screen. So it wasn't really being framed for that new aspect ratio. They were just sort of widening it on the sides, and you could see that very clearly. They had trouble in the mid-50s when they um, started introducing widescreen in the first place, um, CinemaScope and all that, because you know none of the directors were used to filming that way yet. And um, I know John Ford, which is funny because you think of John Ford and you think of those great, vast landscapes of the searchers and all that stuff. He hated widescreen. He wanted to do all his movies in 4.3, but he, he wasn't able to. So all those uh, late color Monument Valley Westerns, all the the Searchers and uh, Sergeant Rutledge and all that, Ford, if he had his way, that all would have been uh, 4-3. Which is interesting because I always thought he was such a poet of widescreen. He has this one called um, The Thin Gray Line about West Point, and it's just this beautifully, like, vast canvases. Mm. Very wide movie. If I'm watching horror, I I tend to like it to be, you know, 185 or... We should probably just be using better terms for this. We should, uh, I'll say, I'll just say 16.9 and people will, yeah, you know, so people know what I mean. Um, I like it to be 16.9 or 4.3. I'm not big into super wide horror. So you want sort of intimacy in your yeah. horror. How about you, Rick? Yeah, that, that makes sense. No, I mean, this, this topic's a little bit outside of my expertise, but, uh, but, but absolutely, I, I understand what you're saying as far as, uh, you know, uh, you're watching a horror movie, sort of have that more intimate setting and, and having it, uh, not having it shot as wide. So, room full of spoons. It's a two thirty-five one, right? <laughs> Is it IMAX? <laughs> yeah, it's an IMAX film, right? Yeah, you shot yeah, on seventy all, millimeter, right? All shot on seventy mil. That's right. That's Stereoscopic three D. That's why we need this Kickstarter money. Yeah, that's. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, get him the get him the Kickstarter money for his three D post conversion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I assume your film's sixty-nine, right? Yeah, it is. I mean, I like, uh, that's how I like documentaries too. Like I, I hated that film, the imposter 10 minutes into it. I couldn't even fucking watch it for one. And I, I, you know, I've talked about this in previous episodes, but for one thing, they, you know, they changed the colors on everything. So you never got the actual look of any setting that you were looking at. They did, they did dramatizations, which I'm not a fan of, but it can be done tastefully. I just didn't like how it was done here. But the third thing is that they shot it super wide and they framed everything very cinematically and when i'm watching a documentary i want to see a person's house i want to see a person's life i want to see them and i just yeah. i couldn't get into it right 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 okay i haven't seen it yet but yeah rick what did you shoot on what's uh i, I imagine you must have had to have like a small kit because you were traveling so much uh we we changed cameras a lot throughout the film i mean it's something to to uh, to be considered here is when we started making this movie, we were just fanboys. We were not filmmakers. We only really were dreaming of being filmmakers at the time. We shot like, a couple music videos and stuff like that. So we started on uh, like D seven hundreds, just what we could afford at the time, you know. And um, so you sort of see like our progression as filmmakers over the years, and it's an unintentional kind of cool thing that happened while filming. And now we're shooting on. Um, Canon, uh, like, like cinema ca- grade cameras, uh, like we're shooting 4K now. Oh, wow. Oh, man. Yeah. That is yeah, a big yeah. leap. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is. So, like I said, like, I mean, part of the story, one of the layers of the story, too, is, is you know, me being the biggest fan of the room and, uh, and wanting to be a filmmaker and, and just going on this journey. So, 
like I said, like an unintentional thing that happened throughout the film is that you will see the progression of us as, as, uh, as filmmakers, you know? Mm. That's cool. That's like hoop dreams but with the filmmakers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, hoop dreams is a great example. Like I, that's exactly what I want a documentary to look like. You know, that's that's four three it. video. Yeah, I mean that's gorgeous. That looks me. beautiful on Blu-ray. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't think they would be able to do anything. That's to pretty. It, they just did that recently. Yeah. yeah, I saw the shots from that. But yeah. yeah, the restoration of Hoop Dreams is just unbelievable. Which, if you thought about it, you'd think, yeah, that probably only needs to be seen on DVD. But when you look at the actual, you know, what they did with it, it's mind-boggling. Very cool. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen Hoop Dreams since it was out in theaters. Yeah, it's worth the rewatch. Criterion just. Uh... Criterion's like I think been riding with that movie for a long time and they just upgraded it to Blu-ray and they did this incredible restoration of it which is interesting because you don't really see restored versions of things shot on video a lot mm. so like it's hard to figure out even how much they can fix it and the answer is apparently a lot it looks yeah there's stunning. a lot more detail yeah. there's a lot more material that was just lost and just became fuzz you know yeah it's stunning looking very bring, cool. Yeah, to bring it back to the question, Rick, do you like super wide movies just when you're watching? If I'm watching like a like a sci-fi movie or something like um I, I don't know, like like uh it could some type of like epic movie where there's gonna be a lot of scenery, then yes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, a good point. I think it I think sci-fi specifically, it lends itself more to super wide. Just yeah. By nature of its genre. Because you just sort of want to drink in the production design too. Mm. Like I, I like I can't imagine even sort of adventure sci-fi. Like, I can't imagine any of the early James Bond movies in tight formats because you just want to look at, like, the volcano layers and all that. Right. Yeah, you want to get a feel for, for everything that's going on around yeah. the characters, you know? Yeah, James Bond doesn't really work as well 4-3 or whatever. No. Yeah, because you just you need to see him in space. Which means that, like, you know, for a while, you know, these films are on VHS and you're not really seeing them correctly. And it seems like maybe James Bond, until DVD, you couldn't really see him properly. All right, so I think that about wraps up the episode. Rick, that was that was really fun talking to you again, man. It's always a great to uh, catch up with you. Yeah, thanks for having me back, man. This was, uh, th this was awesome. Like I said, big fan of the show. So uh, whenever you guys want me to be a part of it, it's always great, man. So uh, the Kickstarter... You know, we'll put a link up. We'll get people checking it out. You know, of course, there's the the ten day thing that you're worried about, but people should still definitely be donating, right? Yeah, well, it's it's gonna be down for ten days, so I don't exactly know how that's gonna go as far as what happens when you go on on the the, the Kickstarter site itself. But you know what? Follow us on Facebook, right? Uh, Facebook slash uh, Roomful of Spoons. Uh, on Twitter as well, we're Roomful of Spoon, just because there wasn't enough character for the S. And uh, Instagram as well at Roomful of Spoons. Uh, check us out at rockhavenpictures.com and uh, we'll keep you updated. You know, like I said, this project is definitely, definitely happening. You know, it's just a, a small delay here while we work things out with Wiseau Films and, and with Kickstarter and so on. And I'm sure everything will be resolved amicably in the end. At least that's my hope. But uh, but yeah, just just follow our progress on Facebook and we'll keep everyone uh, up to date on what's happening with Roomful of Spoons. Cool, man. And I love following your posts. You, you post a lot of great stuff on there, so... Uh, I'm definitely endorsing that as well. Awesome. Thanks. Yep. Before we go, if you haven't signed up for Smug Film Club, do so. We give you bonus podcast episodes, bonus content. We don't send you anything you would not want. We send you a lot of free gifts. It's really easy. Just give us your name and your email address. That's all we need. And we will send you a free podcast episode that you will not hear on iTunes or anywhere else right away. And you'll get free more stuff every month or so rick again love talking to you 
Thanks again for being on the show. It's been awesome, dude. Thanks, man. All right. Bye. Bye.